kind of good and fun, I think, during this. Uh, well, good morning. Thank you, Cody. Um, yeah, it's kind of good and fun, I think, during this, during this period as we walk through Exodus. Uh, it's been good to try to experiment with some different ways of congregational prayer and um, how, we, how we engage in that. I've been thinking, um, been thinking a fair amount. Um, we'll actually talk about it next week at the NDI lunch after, after service. Um, but some of the ways that, you know, the world has just shifted. And um, I should say it's shifted from the time when a lot of you were young. It shifted from the time when I was young. And, um, and understanding how to, um, how to sort of be the church uh, in this time is challenging. So I'm going to share a little bit of that next week. But part of that experimentation and what we're doing with, with prayer is, is part of us sort of thinking through that together um, as a body. So our text today, Exodus 4, uh, 1 to 17, again, Thank you to Josh. I sent him like three curveballs, I think, right before service and even as service was starting. So um, it is a ministry to be back there, I tell you. Um, all right, Exodus 4. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. They will not believe you, God said, or listen to you, uh, or listen to the first sign. They may believe the latter sign. They will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice. Then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past, since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will, be with the, I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the sign. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we do thank you for your work, your presence, um, and your ministry to us in weak vessels like Moses. Lord, help us to hear you and respond to you today. Amen. Well, we're kind of picking the story up halfway from um, where we left it off last week. Last week, Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he encounters this bush that burns but is not consumed, right, which is important. Um, a bush that burns and is not consumed. He's 
goes to investigate, and, and the Lord, the angel of the Lord, starts speaking to him out of the bush. Um, and he has this whole conversation with God. God reveals his name to him, his kind of unique personal name. Um, you know, there's all kinds of interpretations and all this stuff, uh, but the, the tetragrammaton is the big fancy word, Y-H-W-H. It just means, tetragrammaton just means four-letter word, um, but you don't want to say that about God. So, um, so he gets this name, and, and now he's got to kind of figure out what to do with it, right? Um, now he's got to kind of figure out, I have to actually respond to this God. I have to do what this God is asking me to do. And he receives the name, not because God needs to prove himself to Moses, but because Moses needs to prove himself to the other Israelites in Egypt. Right? He needs to be able to say, no, I actually met the God that you've been worshiping. I actually met the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has put the whole story together, five moments of saying no, or not yet, or not me. His response is resistance. And it, and it doesn't look like that's what it's going to be at first. He gets up on the mountain. He's chasing sheep, according to the DreamWorks movie. Um, he's chasing some sheep um, up onto the mountain and runs into this bush. And, and when God says, Moses, remove your shoes, he's more than happy to do that. He's more than happy to take off his shoes and say, I'm stepping into holy ground. I'm coming into this place, not as a master, but as a slave. That's what it would have been to remove your shoes. To say, Lord, I'm humbling myself before you. He's more than happy to go and, and make a show of obedience to God. But as soon as God starts asking something of him, Moses has questions. He's willing to serve. He's willing to be servile. But it doesn't appear that he's willing to obey. I feel like Moses this morning. Often I feel like Moses. I'm real willing to serve God and make a show of it. And, and even when I'm in the, minute, in the midst of making a show of it, I really mean it. Right? I'm not lying. I'm not being false. But when I'm pressed into obedience, it's a little bit harder. As I was reflecting on the end of chapter 3 and, and thinking about here chapter 4, I, I, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that Cody was talking about. Like if God would just show up to me, it would be so easy to believe. Right? If Jesus would just like be in my bedroom, it would be so easy to live my life. If God would just like live at a little place in the corner of my house and I could go home every day and tell him about my day and then he would be like, it's okay, you tried really hard. Um, we'll get, we'll get, him, you know, get him again tomorrow. Um, if I could just live that sort of life and he would be physically present to me, then, then I would be faithful and this thing wouldn't be so hard. But here's Moses at the bush, speaking with the angel, hearing the divine name, and it's not enough. And I, I think part of it is what the name actually means. It's what he actually hears in the name. You know, it gets translated different ways. I am that I am is the one. Right? But then I will be what I will be. 
So here's why that's different from every other god Moses would have encountered in Egypt or in the wilderness in Midian or with anybody else that he would have encountered in his day. So in Moses' world, when you worship a god, you do it so that the god helps you out. Right? Gods and their people live in a dependent relationship. Gods give them things that they need, rain, sunshine, warm weather, good harvest, and then I give God something that that God needs, a house to live in, a body to have. That's why I've got to carve him an idol, all this kind of thing. The God needs something from me. And so that actually ends up making me feel pretty good. If God needs something from me, then I don't mind being in this symbiotic relationship, but the way God reveals himself to, to Moses is to say, guess what? I don't need you. I will be what I will be. I am what I am. I don't need you to make me a body. I don't need you to carve me something that I can inhabit. I don't even need you to build me a house. We'll get to that, but that's really for you. Right? God's self-revelation as the God who does not need us was totally new. It's totally new. And I don't know that Moses or Israel or anybody is that excited about stepping into a relationship with somebody who does not have any need of them. I call this in my own head the terrifying reality of God's independence. That God doesn't require my maintenance. It's sort of funny. I, I don't do a lot of this, and when I do it, I don't do it well. But if you've ever tried to raise money um, <laughs> for an organization, or nonprofit especially, right? What you're doing as you try to raise money from a donor is, is you are trying to help them see and understand that if they give you money, that they don't have to give you, right? <laughs> they have, there's nothing in them, there's nothing necessarily like physically pushing them to give you money, but you have to show them that by giving you money, they're going to be fulfilling some deep need or desire of their own, right? They're going to be supporting a cause that's really important to them, or they're going to be meeting some, some unmet personal need that, you know, maybe they made millions of dollars, but they still can't scratch that itch deep down inside, right? There's all these kinds of, we, you have to help the donor see that by giving to my organization, you are accomplishing something that you want to accomplish. That's not what's going on here. <laughs> right? God has called Moses to something. He's called him to something good. He's called him to something big. He's called him to something that will put his own life on the line. But at the same time, God doesn't need Moses. This Ultimately, is grace. This is grace. God does not need me, and yet God loves me. God doesn't need me, and yet he knows me. God, God doesn't need me, and yet he calls me. I'm completely unnecessary to God's work in the world, and yet even in my unnecessariness, he lifts me up into his work. He takes me 
from wherever I am. And gives me a role, a place, a place to belong, a people to belong to. And then sends me out with a mission to carry out. So that my life, even though it doesn't have to mean anything, even though I didn't even have to exist in the first place, my life is all of a sudden caught up in something that's not only transcendent, like going to a big concert or something like that, I'm all of a sudden caught up in something that is both transcendent and eternal. I belong to the one who is. I'm attached to he who will be what he will be. You see how significant this is? This is grace. And a lot of us, in so many of our relationships, we live in this codependency. Right? You know that word? I'm dependent on you, so you're dependent on me. I need you to give me something, and you need me to give you something. And I can be sure that you're going to show up for me tomorrow because I know that you need me to give you something. So I can't give you all of what you need. So I give you everything that you need for me, then you might not show up tomorrow. And I need you to be here tomorrow. It's that like anxious sort of thing that we live with in people. There's no codependency in God. Moses is in deep, deep waters here. <laughs> and so he says, you know, how am I going to do this? So, so God says, what's in your hand, right? A staff. Okay, take that staff, throw it down. It turns into a snake. Now to us, ah, scary snake, like run away, right? But to Moses, Throw that staff down, your symbol of authority over a bunch of sheep in the wilderness. And what does it become? It becomes the symbol of authority of Pharaoh over all the people of Egypt. What's at the top of Pharaoh's little crown, headdress? I don't know what it's called. Do you know? If anybody speaks Egyptian, it's probably Cody. I don't know what that... that <laughs> right? The, the cobra, the, 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 with the snake with the hood out, this is the sign of Pharaoh's authority. His ability to cover, but also his ability to strike. It's why you listen to him. So Moses' staff becomes a snake. It would be like if God called a American shepherd up the side of Mount Whitney, right? And they get right up along Lone Pine Lake up there, and there's a there's a bush that's on fire, and they go and talk. They throw down your trekking pole, and he does. And the trekking pole becomes a bald eagle, right? It's like the thing is going to turn into the sign of power that Moses is about to undo. Because he doesn't grab the snake, you notice, by the head, like Steve Irwin. Right? He grabs it by the tail. If you're afraid of a snake, you grab it by the head so it can't bite you. Moses is not afraid of the snake. Well, he, he is, but he's not supposed to be. So God tells him to grab him by the tail. It turns back into snake. The sign, is it's not just a sort of random application of miraculous ability. Right? The sign is a way of saying, look, this authority that you think you live under is an authority that serves me. This authority that you think has power over the entire known world is actually a power that serves me. Remember who I am. Pharaoh is under my protection. 
and to push it even further. Now take your hand and put it inside your cloak, and he pulls it out, and it's, I, you know, if I was Moses, it's like, man, if my staff became a snake, like, what's my hand going to become? Like a lobster claw or like a, you know, a wolf's head or something? Like, <laughs> I'm imagining something cool, but instead of something, like, cool and powerful, it's leprosy. Great. Okay. Now I got this to deal with. Um, he's standing, and his, he's, he's got an illness on his hand that they cannot heal. Right? This is a skin disease that would send you away that ultimately Pharaoh doesn't have any power over. Moses doesn't have any power. Moses' cool father-in-law, Jethro, doesn't have any power over. Nobody knows what to do with this. But again, God is able to heal. What I see in those two signs is that, yes, God can tear down the snake. God can also lift up the sick. Right? God also heals the outcast. God can easily make the thing that we think is a threat no threat at all. God can also take those things that have shut us off from community, that have shut us off from the people that we love, and heal and restore so that it's like it never happened. Finally, God gives a funny sign. The third sign I'm going to give you is that later on, after you've already obeyed me, <laughs> right, the Nile is going to turn into blood. What's going on? Again, the Nile, the very lifeblood of Egypt. Right? The very thing that gave them their life that overflowed its banks, that was regular and predictable, and yet didn't cause thunderstorms and all this kind of stuff. Like this is why Egypt is so powerful. Because they've got this great river. And the river allows them to have reliable agriculture and irrigate and do all this stuff and not be dependent on rain. So God comes after their lifeblood takes control of their story. So Moses is in a position where this God that he is in the midst of discovering is one who dethrones pharaohs. And yet this God who he is in the midst of discovering is one who heals the leper. He is the source of life. He's the fount of authority. He can raise up and tear down. Moses is discovering that this God is not just a God among gods. He's not just the God of that mountain or of this desert, but he's the Lord of all. How often do we struggle with that? How often are we willing to relativize God to put him here? God, you can handle this. You can deal with this part of me. You can deal with this part of my life. Lord, I believe you have authority over this, but as soon as you are, are not helping me, as soon as you're not helpful to the way that I want to live, become marginalized. As soon as the Lord is not good for my version of fulfillment, he's no longer a part of the conversation. Well, the Lord has proven himself, I think, hopefully. Now Moses has to take a different tack. He can't say, God, are you big enough to do this thing anymore? Now he says, God, I'm too small to do this, right? So he goes from, God, I need you to show up, to all of a sudden, but, but God, I, I, I can't do this thing. I, I can't even 
Moses don't speak good, right? Like, I, and some, my favorite discovery this week, some scholars think probably what happened is that he kind of lost his Egyptian and his Hebrew. He's been living in Midian for 40 years. So you can imagine how this happens, right? Like, you grow up and you're speaking Hebrew and you're speaking Egyptian and you're kind of around it, but all of a sudden you're out in the desert for four decades and you just kind of lose the language a little bit. And how are you going to go back into the court? You know, this is his third language, at least. He's going to go back into the court and he's going to make arguments and kind of these big speeches to Pharaoh and he's not really going to have the fluency. So this whole, like, I'm, you know, I, my tongue gets tied and weak speech, it could have been any number of things. But I just love the idea that he's not fluent in Egyptian anymore. Right? It's just like a totally normal thing to me. <laughs> But of course, God says, that's no excuse. I'll give you what you need to say, the time that you need to say it. I'm just so impressed here about the way that we handle these kinds of things in our church. You know, I, I mean, I don't know if there's a community of people who speak a different language who maybe worship in a very similar place to the place that we worship. Maybe one or two nights a week <laughs> who gather in this same spot and who we call a part of our church, and yet sometimes we allow the difference in language to keep us from relationship. Right? I'm talking about, of course, about our Iglesia Maranatha, our Spanish congregation here. And I know how easy it is to use something as simple as that as a reason not to come into relationship with somebody. But it's just so critical that we do it. And we say, Lord, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm just going to show up and see what you do. Right? Maybe I won't understand everything that's going on, but maybe you'll give me 50%. Maybe my presence will communicate something. But it also speaks to the way that we deal, not just with sort of difficulties in our community, but the way that we, we deal with kind of disability or difficulty across the board. And how often in the church we elevate natural ability over giftedness and calling. We elevate what somebody can naturally do or who they've naturally been or their own history if they're easy to get along with, or they can speak in public, or they know how to organize a meeting, all of a sudden, we see them, quote-unquote, rising up the ranks. And it may have nothing to do with what God's called them to. Friends and people I've known who struggle with speech, struggle with skill. People who have been close to me that have struggled with an intellectual disability who are the biggest possible gift to the church. Because sometimes it's not about all that we do publicly or how we present ourselves to the outside world. Sometimes it's just about our willingness to be faithful. Some of us may disqualify ourselves because of the things that have happened in our life. And addictions we've dealt with or things that we've struggled with across time. I still think on a regular basis of a man who came into the church where I was in college um, 
he was experiencing homelessness at the time, and some friends had, had picked him up and, and brought him in. And I was a really, I probably shouldn't say this online, I was a really bad tither in college. <laughs> my, my method, I would walk into church, and I would give whatever cash was in my wallet. Okay, But I didn't do any like prep work. Okay? It was just whatever was in there. That was my deal with God. <laughs> I don't want to have to go to the bank and get ready to tithe, right? I'm thinking big thoughts. I, I just sort of show up and everybody's happy I'm there. This is really bad tither in college. And, and I'm, I was sitting there in church and, and my friends had brought in this guy from Point Loma. He, he was living in the area of Point Loma. And, and it's time for offerings and the, the offering plate is there in the front of the church. And here he comes and clanks, you know, a dollar fifty or something in coins that I'm sure he had panhandled the day before. And it was this real, like, widow's, widow's pennies kind of moment, right? That he would give everything he had. He was willing to show up with all he had at that moment. And I'm sitting there with however much in my bank account. It wasn't that much, but it was more than a buck fifty. I'm still kind of resistant to turn that over. We cannot let the experiences of our life be the thing that we use to disqualify ourselves from the work and service that God has for us. We could put it in those terms, I think, the terms that are more immediate to most of us is trauma we may have experienced. Right? And I'm certainly not trying to write off the difficulty of any of those things, but we can't let those traumatic events begin to narrate our lives, tell the story of our lives in such a way that we say, well, God, you're going to have to go do what you do, because I just have to sit here because of this thing that happened to me. Right? Sometimes, those who live with anxiety or depression have access to people and experiences that, any, that somebody who hasn't walked through that is never going to have access to. Sometimes, the traumatic thing that you've experienced is the very key that's going to allow you to speak to somebody in need. It's the very thing that's going to open up the door to let you speak a good word of God's love and life. Those are obviously really sensitive and difficult things. But I want us to have this, this sense of hope that no matter where you've been and what you've walked through, that God is still calling you. Even if your life didn't turn out the way you thought your life was going to turn out. God is still calling you forward. We'll find out next week that Moses had all kinds of things that he had ignored. <laughs> but God still called him forward. For the Lord, there's no disability that keeps us from valuable service. Some disabilities reveal God's ability to heal. Other disabilities reveal God's faithfulness and perseverance. Sometimes, when you come forward with your disability, what it reveals is that there is a church that still loves you. That there's a community who will come around, support, and walk with you. 
I spoke with a guy, um, not this week, but the week before, who leads a 12-step group up in Chico. And I've just been so impressed by the work of 12-step groups. The only thing you really need to enter into something like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or any of the others, he leads a group called Serenity um, that's very clear about higher powers and things like that. But the only, the only thing you need to enter into that place is a willingness to be honest about who you are and where you are and a willingness to humble yourself. To admit step one in the big book of AA is that you're powerless over your own problems. That you are powerless over your problems. God's not powerless over your problems, but God's not going to take from you what you won't surrender to him. And if we don't get honest, and if we don't get humble, we just continue to spin our wheels in that same crap. Live with the same excuses, live with the same empty promises, and go back over and over again to something that we know does not give life. We've got to move beyond a church culture that's about preserving the idea that we're not broken. If we see and read Moses' story well, I think we can see that we're called in Christ to embrace our brokenness at the place where Christ begins his healing. Some of you guys may have seen it. Can you throw that picture up, Josh? This is like, this is curveball number one, I see. Okay, so this is this uh, uh, Japanese pottery form called kintsugi. I'm, I know I'm saying that wrong, but uh, <laughs> um, but here's, here's what it is, is you start with like a perfectly good piece of pottery, right? You start with a perfectly good cup or bowl, um, and then it either breaks or you break it. And And the way that you kind of engage in this art form is to take the broken pieces of the pot and to fill those cracks with gold and put it back together. Right? So that it goes from a thing that is clay and, and literally it's just dirt from the ground. That's what clay is. It goes from this thing that is clay and it gets thrown out and it's got all the skill of the potter and all of that kind of thing and that's cool. But then it's the putting back together of that thing that started good and then got broken. It's the putting back together of that thing with something precious. With something more precious than it even started as. So that what you have is an object that even though it has the exact same shape of the way that it started, now because of that precious thing that's been pressed into the cracks and the gaps, now it's actually more precious than it was at the beginning. And in fact, it takes two craftsmen, or one craftsman two times, to do this kind of work, right? The original craftsman who makes the cup and then the restoring, redeeming craftsman who puts it back together. And I just can't think of a better image <laughs> that's not in the Bible of how this stuff takes place in our lives. That we start out, we may have all kinds of dreams and plans for our life and maybe it goes the way we want it to and, and maybe it doesn't. And we find ourselves broken, and we find ourselves in shards, and not being who we thought we would be. And what we discover in the grace of the God who does not need us but still calls us, what we discover in the grace of the I am who just is, and yet who lifts us up 
into himself. The God who is fully complete and yet still invites us to participate is a God who takes those broken pieces, fills those cracks and gaps with something even more precious. The very love of his son. The very spirit of God himself. But we have got to recognize that we're broken. Thanks, Josh. So this is what Jesus ends up doing. He sends his disciples out to speak and has all kinds of instructions for them. And I'm struck here by Moses' line in verse 13. After all of this, after God has done and said and shown all of these things, Moses says, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Like, I've given you all I've got, and I've told you why you're not enough, and I've told you why I'm not enough, and you just won't let it go, God. So let me just say what I really meant from the beginning. Just send someone else. I don't want to go. I know those people. I know those Israelites. They don't like me. I tried to save them. It didn't work out. I know those Egyptians. They don't like me either. I was on wanted posters. This is not going to go well. Maybe it'll go well for you, but it's not going to go well for me. Oh, Lord, please send someone else. And I, I think what Moses doesn't know is that he's not being sent back to wage war. He's not being sent back to launch a crusade. He's not being sent back with the evangelization of the snake or of the bald eagle. He's being sent back with an evangelism of good news, of obedience, of the cross. So maybe the rescue and the promise this morning is that you can let go of that version of yourself that you used to hold on to before it was broken. You can let go of that idea of what you were going to be and then it fell apart and you can't put the shards back together. And you're going, why won't this work and these pieces won't stay? And I, and I can get the cup to sit there, and I, it, it works as long as I can hold it in my hand, but as soon as I have to do something else, the pieces just fall apart again. And God's saying, look, the rescue is you don't have to be holding that thing together anymore. You get to be who I say you are, not by your willpower, but by my grace. I am what I am. I love you, and I've called you. but we have to let go of our rebellion. We've got to let go of that line, oh Lord, just please send someone else. Thinking about this part. And I'm, can I tell you, I'm deeply, deeply convinced this morning that I am not God. I'm deeply convinced that I'm not God. I'm not here to chew you out. And if there's any chewing out that needs to happen, the Spirit will have to do that in your own heart. The question for me and for you, if you want to join me, needs to be this. What's next? How does God want me to move? What is the nature 
my rebellion against God? How am I refusing to say yes? Because God called each of us, whether we are disabled or not, and guess what, we're all disabled in some way. Whether we're weak or not, and we're all weak, whether we're broken or not, and we're all broken, he's called all of us into his service. And it's why I, curveball number three, uh, changed the reading from Romans to Ephesians this morning. Because it says that God gave these people to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God from mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Did you hear that? Every one of us is called not to be successful according to our own definition of successful. All, every one of us is called to do the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ, to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness we're all called into maturity. We're all called to fullness and wholeness and lives of absolutely overflowing love. And God will give the church what it needs to do that work. It's my role and my privilege, not necessarily to be a counselor, but to listen to God with you. If you're ready to say, look, I don't know what God is calling me to, I will say, I don't know either, but let's go sit down and get quiet and talk and listen. But in order for us to do that, we have to be unlike Moses, honest. We have to be unlike Moses, humble. Because God, I'm convinced, doesn't want superheroes, but simple and humble ordinary people and materials. This is the God, remember, who burns up a bush but doesn't consume it. Who every week, again, by grace, not by magic, fills the bread and the cup and makes himself present to us. All it takes is us saying, yes, Lord, let it be with me according to your will. I'm going to have Cody come up and, and lead us at the table. But as we do that, we're going to sing that last song, um, Christ Be All Around Me. If you don't know, that's a prayer, St. Patrick. Uh, they call it like St. Patrick's breastplate. Or... He was a missionary. He spent his life going into dangerous places. He spent his life going into people who could and wanted to kill him. He spent his life following Christ into places that any sane person would not want to be. I hope that as we come to the table and as we sing that song again, that you can sing those words from your heart. Take me wherever you want to go. And if I don't know how to do it, Lord, give me the tools that I need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I'm so grateful for your servant Moses. I'm so grateful 
for the account of his life here. And the fact, Lord, that it's a living word for us. That if we will listen and hear that we too can be drawn into that honest and humble life. And the hope and the knowledge that you not only call us, you equip us. And that even though you don't need us, you love us. Help us, Lord, to live in that today. Amen.